Welcome to Tomorrow's People, the podcast that showcases the expertise of the best and brightest investors in venture capital and private asset investing. In each episode, BFA founding partner Gavin Azekowitz will invite a leading investor across the BFA global investors ecosystem, covering areas such as venture capital, private equity, and hedge funds. Join us as we bring you the top minds shaping global markets and get into the game of private asset investing. Good morning, everybody. So a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure to sit in the office with Bob Elliott and chat with him and his colleagues about what they're building at Unlimited Funds. And it's really a privilege because Bob has such an exceptional background. But I can also tell you as a person, he's the kind of guy you want to have a beer with. He's just a fantastic person. By way of background and introduction, he was deputy CIO and on the investment committee and at one time head of research at Ray Dalio's firm, Bridgewater. He was responsible for the Pure Alpha FX portfolio and wrote the daily observations piece in his research role. And if you follow him on Twitter, you can tell this man is prolific. Man, can he consume information and give you a chart that explains it all? It's quite amazing. So Bob, you said on a podcast recently that you were the last paperboy in America. I cannot independently corroborate that information. But when you went from shoveling snow and delivering papers in Detroit to Bridgewater, did that translate? Did that help at all? How did that go for you? For those who hadn't heard that story in another forum, my father was actually an entrepreneur and and I set about engaging in a bunch of different odd jobs and entrepreneurial activities as a kid. Some of which included, as you say, mowing lawns, shoveling snow, thankfully plenty in Detroit, and delivering papers at a nickel apiece, which right. over time, I quickly learned that tips are what matter, not the nickels. And so that creates the success there. But but I think in a lot of ways, that experience, a couple of different things. First, for me, there is no short track to good outcomes like For instance, the papers are kind of a funny story, which is like the way that you succeed there is by day in, day out, delivering the papers effectively every day. And it might seem like, you know, any one paper doesn't really matter. But let me tell you, at the end of the year, when the person sitting there thinking about writing the tip or not, it comes down to the accumulation and consistency of delivering that paper every year. And so I think that was a real good lesson in consistency and and getting up, frankly, every day and going to work, so to speak, in terms of building that track record. And I think it's talking about me being prolific on Twitter, like a lot of things that you see there is really a function of what I've learned to do to be a great investment professional, which is every day, get up, look at the markets, think about the markets, wrestle with what's going on. And then now, back years ago, I used to write it, those insights to more institutional investors. And now actually, I really like the fact that I can write it in Twitter, get the real-time response. Frankly, like I learn a lot from what people are thinking and how they respond and the things that I'm missing that come as a result of it. But it really comes down to that day in, day out, you know, consistently trying to build an understanding and a track record that I learned back with the paper room. And that maybe sets the stage a little bit for what you're trying to build or are building at unlimited funds and with the HFND ETF. Now, we'll talk more about that in detail in a moment, but you've kind of bridged from Bridgewater to being an entrepreneur. Just tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Unlimited. Yeah, I mean, I was at Bridgewater for a long time. 
And after almost 15 years, what really got me excited was this idea of could I take the institutional quality asset management experience that I had there, which you know was primarily used to develop strategies for institutional investors and the very wealthy. And was there a way to basically bridge the gap to make those sorts of strategies accessible to all investors? And in particular, to bring them to all investors at a much lower fee structure than typical LP positions. And so that really was the inspiration of Unlimited was this idea of bringing diversified, low-cost index products of two and 20 strategies and making them available to all investors through, through the ETF wrapper in a way that basically allows all investors to gain access to those strategies, but to do it in a way that doesn't require them to be qualified purchasers or accredited investors or doesn't do it in a way that is tax inefficient, particularly for taxable investors. Fantastic. We're going to dig in a little more at the end on HFND. But let's sort of go to your first love, which is macro. A few weeks ago, you wrote a tweet on July 16th that I thought provided one of the most exceptional frameworks for thinking about the macroeconomic environment over the next three to six months, but it frankly could apply well beyond three to six months. And I think people that don't know you wouldn't know that you were pretty good in calling the sort of call it the Q4 recession and particularly the post Silicon Valley Bank long-term capital management parallel about how liquidity might work. And then you've also been, I think, consistent in saying, well, look, folks, it's not game over yet in terms of defeating inflation because of some of the observations around nominal wages and productivity. So you've got this great structure. You've spotted all the stuff really well. How does it fit into a macroeconomic playbook that people can sort of take out into the next period? I think the most important thing for investors to recognize and understand these days is that macro cycles take a really long time. I think for most of us, the most acute downturns in our sort of professional experience are what? 2020, which was an exogenous acute event met by massive stimulation. And then the second, 2008, which again, it wasn't really exogenous, but it was an acute crisis experience that was met by exceptional stimulation. And so for most of us, before that, the last cycle you have to think about is back in the 2000 cycle. And so the vast, vast majority of professional investors today actually have never lived through a traditional macroeconomic cycle. And those macroeconomic cycles, which really come down to what those basic linkages are, which is you raise interest rates, that creates a certain effect on asset prices, that creates a change in demand, that creates a hit to earnings, that creates a slowing of hiring, and that creates an easing of wages. That very basic set of cause-effect linkages is how a typical macro cycle works. But the reality is those linkages take a long time to play out, literally years in most cycles. And I think most of us have in our memory something much more acute, much more like the acute downturns of those 08 and 2020. And so have quickly rushed to expect a bad outcome in an environment where the reality is this is going to take a very, very long time to play out. So that, I think that's the first framework that you've set, which is it does take time. But traditionally, 
And I think this has confused a lot of us. Traditionally, it would be the case that you've got very low unemployment during the period where the Fed is hiking rates, right? I mean, where the economy is slowing. So in some ways, is this a traditional cycle? We shouldn't be surprised that unemployment is sort of bouncing around the lows. It Typically, the way it works is that you have unemployment, you have labor markets and the economy tighten, and then the duration of that tight economy is what then creates the pressures on inflation, which then create the motivation for the central bank to tighten. And that it's that tightening in a typical sort of business cycle. A typical business cycle is ended by the Fed, by the central bank. It's not ended by an exogenous shock. And so that's what we're kind of experiencing here is the Fed is trying to slow the economy in order to mute those inflationary pressures that brought inflation to levels that are elevated relative to their mandate. And so that is how the typical cycle works. I think one of the sort of the typical macro cycle, I think underlying that or making this cycle specific, this period specific, is there's also been a lot of reorganization, I'd say, of the U.S. economy to reduce the sensitivity to interest rates that occurred particularly following the financial crisis and the fractures that existed in the system that, at that time. And what that means is that most borrowers have termed out their borrowing, right? It used to be that there was a lot of short-end floating rate borrowing in the U.S. in the mortgage market. That no longer exists. It used to be that corporations would borrow very much on the short end through floaters and things like that. And so they'd be quickly affected by changes in interest rates. That's no longer the case. And so the combination of a lot of liquidity for a long time, plus that restructuring of the overall economic environment has created a situation that has reduced the sensitivity of the economy to interest rate rises, which means that despite the fact that we've had the greatest interest rate hiking cycle, the fastest interest rate hiking cycle in 40 years, mostly things are fine. There's some cracks, there's some slowing. It's not to overstate that everything is hunky-dory, but I think if you had asked most people 18 months ago what would happen if the Fed hiked 550 basis points, I think people would say it would be really very bad. And it's not that way at all because of that reduced sensitivity of the economy to interest rates. Now, but one of the things that sort of isn't unusual, I perceive it as unusual, is this nominal wage growth relative to productivity gap. And it would appear that the activities of the Fed are doing less than perhaps they would like or anyone would like to dampen that wage growth effect. What's your perspective? The dynamic that you're pointing to is basically you think about what creates structural inflation pressures is the difference between the nominal wage that I'm earning per hour and how that's growing versus the productivity, which is just basically how much can I produce in that hour and how much that's growing. And if what you get is you get nominal wages growing a lot faster than my growth in my productive output, the gap between those two things essentially is the structural inflationary pressure in the economy. That's what we've seen. Nominal hourly wages are growing at, let's call it five. Productivity is growing essentially at zero in the U.S. economy. And the gap between that is not that far off from what the inflationary pressures are that we're seeing sort of, if you sort of look through all the noise in the economy. And I think it has been a very long time since that's been the case, in big part because 
There's been a lot of secular disinflationary pressures, particularly on labor and areas like manufacturing from the globalization we've seen over the course of the last 30 years. And so you really do have to go back to a period in the 60s and 70s to see an environment where nominal wages are growing at a pace that's meaningfully elevated relative to the growth and productive capacity. And of course, the magnitudes, I'm not saying today's the 70s, today's not the 70s by any stretch, but I think in many ways, those times can help you understand the linkages. It can help you understand how it works, right? You see that gap, you see elevated inflation. Of course, it was three or four times more extreme than it is today, but that doesn't mean the linkage isn't relevant and that that, those periods aren't relevant to study, to understand the mechanism of how things work and then apply it to the elasticities and the sensitivities today, which are more muted, but still exhibit that same behavior. Right. Now, I think we set all of that out and we could have said the same sort of thing, Mm -hmm. perhaps at the latter part of 2022, even some of these observations have been around a while, as you say, these cycles take time. But we would have perceived, well, that's just bad for stocks, isn't it? Isn't, you know, aren't equities going to do poorly? Aren't so equities have done okay in, in, in aggregate. Some indices have done exceptionally well. Tech is mega tech has massively outperformed. But looking at the parallels to similar periods and looking at sort of this higher for longer, it's going to take time to play out. Is it just bad for equities here? Or could it be okay for equities? What's the perspective? The key question when you're thinking about that is how is the central bank responding to the macroeconomic conditions? So as an example, the U.S. economy, the nominal growth in the U.S. economy is pretty good. It was seven nominal final sales growth in the first quarter was seven and a half percent. Looks like nominal growth in this quarter is going to continue to be pretty strong. Maybe it's more like five or six instead of seven and a half. Things move up and down over time. But that's the basic dynamic of what's going on here is that we have pretty good nominal growth. And so then the question becomes, is what the Fed's doing and the central bank doing getting ahead of that? Are they moving faster than that momentum in the economy, or are they moving slower than that momentum? And so I think what we saw is we saw a point where back in 2022, the Fed went from basically providing max monetary stimulation to then withdrawing that. That created a hit to stocks and bonds, which was reflective of the fact that they were starting to get ahead. They were moving faster than the economy's momentum, which was starting to cool the economy and asset prices. But what we've seen this year is actually an important transition. First, it got started by the transitory or illusionary disinflation that Powell picked up on in the end of January and early February. And then in particular, it was exacerbated by the SVB situation, both of which basically created an impetus for the Fed to ease off their hiking cycle. And as a result of that, what essentially happened is they went from getting ahead of the cycle, ahead of the economy to getting behind the economy, one or two steps behind. And that's a very different dynamic than what we saw in 2022. And so what you're seeing today is a dynamic where the Fed, where the economy nominal growth is good, but the Fed is a bit behind. And what the outcome of that is basically that stocks end up doing okay because nominal growth is doing okay. And in particular, stocks end up doing better than bonds because the Fed continues to hike. It's just they don't hike enough 
to take over the economy. And that's really where, I mean, that's where we've been since, let's call it April 1st to May 1st, up until today, where we've really seen that jaw open between the performance of stocks and the performance of bonds. And as long as the Fed remains a step or two behind the curve, you'd expect that to continue. So even though, of course, at some point there will be a recession, and at some point that will be bad for the stock market, as long as the Fed is behind the curve, it's going to be an okay time for stocks, and I should say a particularly bad time for bonds. So with that, given that you see almost in real time what the hedge fund universe, which is, I mean, a very broad church, if you will, what you see the hedge fund universe, how have they been positioned through this period? And maybe just explain to people a little bit about how hedge funds really work. Because I think people think of hedge funds as a bunch of guys or women out there gunslinging, making trades all day, trying to look for sort of mega moves when really they're pretty carefully risk managed enterprises. Is that fair? Maybe give us some color around that. Hedge funds, having been in the industry for almost 20 years, I think it's the outside perspective relative to, for instance, the institutional investor's perspective is very different. And so the goal of a hedge fund, most hedge funds are invested in by institutional investors or very wealthy individuals. What they're looking for is they're looking for differentiated return relative to the risk that they're taking. And in that context, most asset managers, most hedge fund managers are not trying to put up double digit triple, you know, double digit, triple digit returns. Yeah, sure, those guys get some headlines, but those are like a handful of managers in a universe of 3,000 managers that are operating on a day-to-day basis. Most prudent institutional quality hedge fund managers are trying to deliver stock or slightly better returns at a risk profile that is, say, half as much monthly volatility, less drawdown, et cetera. And so what that functionally results in is that during highly uncertain environments, you know, often what you'll see is you'll see hedge fund managers play conservatively. And the reason why they're doing that is that one of the key aspects to generating good returns, good risk-adjusted returns, and actually good headline returns over a long time frame is basically to take advantage of when you can increase your risk and position for asset markets that are moving in a clear direction. And then what that also means is in periods of time where there's meaningful uncertainty, and I'd say this is the most uncertain period of time we've probably seen in the last 20 years, what most managers would do is they will continue to have risk on, but be more conservative with taking on that risk. And the idea is that basically what that will lead to over time is a good outcome. And so as an example, lots of hedge fund managers in the industry as a whole has been panned a bit this year. It's like, oh, hedge funds are up 5% this year, let's say. And stocks, the S&P 500 is up 20%. And NASDAQ's up 40%. They must not know what they're doing. But I think it's important to have a bit of a wider lens than just what's happening in the last six months. If you look since the beginning of 2022, hedge fund managers have delivered better returns than basically any other asset market other than concentrated commodity positions because they've been prudent through this cycle. If you go back to 2020, I think is a great example. Think about what we've lived through since January 2020. How many ups and downs in the asset markets have we lived through? Well, hedge fund managers in aggregate have delivered returns 
uh, on par or a bit better than equity market returns over that time frame, which in aggregate have been pretty good, but they've done it with less than a third as much volatility. That's really what hedge funds are all about, which is equity-like returns with a lot less heartburn. <laughs> That's what right, it's really right. about. And I think you made a comment to me. You said, and you're right, hedge fund guys, they get panned, uh, their returns so don't beat the index and so forth. But you made the comment to me that they actually generate a lot of alpha. That is, they are really good, uh, the, not everybody, of course, but they're in aggregate really good at generating those returns. The problem is they take most of that return back for themselves in fees, right? Sort of the magic here as an investor would be, well, I, I do want those differentiated returns, but I'd like to do them for less. And that's sort of the magic, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising that these funds that spend literally billions and billions of dollars hiring the most talented financial professionals in the world are able to, over time, generate returns that are differentiated relative to index returns. That is no great surprise. And they've done that, hedge funds have done that in up markets and down markets, have done that for 25, 30 years. In the modern space, they've done it over the last five years and 10 years and 20 years, all of those time frames. So that's quite a compelling story. There's an intuitive way, reason for why you think these managers deliver differentiated returns. And there's also a good track record in doing it. And the basic problem that exists in the market today when it comes to accessing those returns are that the funds do charge fees that are too high. So if you just think about it, you know, anyone can get access to cash returns and beta returns. So if you just focus on the alpha returns that the managers provide, what you see today is that in aggregate, hedge fund managers take about 80% of the alpha that they generate. And that is not great for the investor. That leaves investors not that much better off than they could be on their own if they just invested in index funds. And I think, and there's a lot of a lot of historical reasons why that's the case that's not beyond the scope of this conversation, other than to say that's kind of the market clearing price for LP investments. I think the thing that's interesting is if the managers are good at generating the returns, if you can replicate what those managers are doing, or get something close to replicating what those managers are doing, but charge a quarter of the cost, well, that totally changes the economics and the interest of having that asset in your portfolio. And that's really what we're trying to do at Unlimited is based upon our decades of experience having done this, take that understanding, and we've built technology that allows us to look over the shoulder of the managers, get a pretty good understanding of what they're doing, and then take that understanding and make it available to every investor through that ETF wrapper. And so that's really what we're trying to do. But because we use technology and don't have to pay off the star PMs, we can charge a lot less than what those hedge fund managers often charge. And so that's really the deal, which is, I like to call it, you know, fee alpha. Fee alpha right. is the most durable alpha in the world, because as long as you can, can generate returns that are on par or similar, if you charge a lot less, you can keep charging a lot less and that difference accrues to the investor and not to the manager. And so my vision is basically that balance. Instead of 80-20 to the manager, it should be 80-20 to the investor who's putting their capital on the line. And I think so the HFND will perform like a basket of hedge funds 
in terms of its volatility, so its daily volatility and drawdowns in poor markets and overall performance in up markets, very, very similar, similarly to if you created a fund of funds, forgetting the fees for a moment, a fund of funds of the biggest, baddest hedge funds out there. That's exactly right. I mean, our goal with HFND is to create a return that is similar to the return of investing in the aggregate hedge fund industry or portfolio of those most sophisticated asset managers in the world. And then we expect to outperform those net of fee performance indices that people might be familiar with because we're charging a lot lower fee than what the managers are doing on their own. And I think in particular, it's also worth mentioning that from a US investor's perspective and may may or may not apply more globally, is that also the ETF structure is a more tax efficient structure because it allows you to take capital gains charges rather than ordinary income at the time in which you sell, assuming you hold it for the appropriate timeframes. And so that's really the idea. Same basic set of returns, those returns that we talked about, on the order of a bit better than stocks with much lower volatility, but at a much lower fee point and a much more tax-efficient structure. Just to be clear, you're obviously a very smart guy. You have a market view. You present your view multiple times a day. But this is not Bob Elliott's view of what hedge funds should be doing or might be doing or are doing. This is purely a drive out of the machine learning. There's no Bob Elliott overlay, for better or worse, (laughs) to HFND. Is that fair? It is. Like I think when you think about how do you get the most consistent, positive returns that you can bring to your portfolio, I think part part of the question is, who do you bet on? And so in general, we've talked about, look, hedge fund managers, for a variety of different reasons, make sense why they would generate more consistent positive returns than index investing. But I think one of the key issues that many investors run into is that they're often limited in the opportunities that they can invest in. So they might know someone and might be able to get into this particular fund or that particular fund or this particular strategy. And I think one of the questions is basically comes down to diversification. In many ways, when you pick a single manager, you have all of the variance that comes with a single manager outcome. And so that could be good, it could be bad. And on average, it's going to move, even the best managers are going to go through long periods of underperformance or the best strategies. And so our idea with HFND is create that diversified portfolio of managers because those managers in aggregate will do well over time. It's like, instead of just betting on Djokovic to win the next major, what you're actually doing is you're betting on the top 100 players to win the next major, and you'll probably win. You'll probably get the winners, and you'll probably get a good outcome if you can buy the whole pool of the most sophisticated asset managers in the world. And so that's really what we're betting on with the HFND product is the aggregate set of managers are going to do much better than traditional index investing over time. Fantastic. We're going to keep digging into this over the weeks and months to come. But just conscious of time, you've got a busy day. Just set us up for the rest of the summer here. We've got, of course, Jackson Hole is something we always point to with Fed this week and then Jackson Hole. What do you think we want to be watching for over the next couple of months 
as I guess some of those key totems along the way that people can be conscious of? There's a couple of sort of macro fundamental pieces that are critical to look at. The first of which, of course, is inflation and how is that playing out? Now, my sense is that we're going to see a calculated period of lower inflation than we've seen over the previous 18 months. The basic question is, are we bottoming at three or are we bottoming at two? And is there a clear path of getting us to to back to the Fed's mandate? And right now, it doesn't look like that's the case when you sort of add up all the numbers and look at the fundamental pressures. But that's the basic dynamic is understanding whether there are indications that we are on a glide path. Now, I think then the second question is to then look at how the Fed is evolving its decision-making, how it's interpreting that information, right, and what its reaction function is towards that information. And that's really important because it helps you understand whether they maintain that step behind the curve or step ahead of the curve. My guess is what we'll see, most Fed meetings don't matter that much, and mostly what they talk about doesn't matter that much. But I think it will be telling over the course of the next one or two meetings to understand Powell's reaction function, how he's interpreting the information that's coming to him, and whether he's really thinking that he's that it's real still a problem and that he wants to get ahead of it. Or is he saying, hey, look, I see the signs that this is moderating, and so I'm comfortable being a little slower in terms of my policy moves? My guess is that it'll be the second, and that's very good for stocks and, frankly, quite bad for bonds through the end of the year. Right. What a great place to wrap, Bob. Thank you so much for your time. Always such a pleasure. Looking forward to chatting with you again. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's People on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or your favorite audio platform. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.